HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hello, and welcome to Snacking Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we're joined by Leslie Marinoff, the co-founder of Matchbook Distilling Co. They are a bespoke distilling company that does not sacrifice nature for profit. We talk about her time as a Sally Jerry tattoo queen and the evolution of Matchbook Distilling Company into an incredible, bespoke, localized, biodiverse company. Later in the show, we're joined by Art Echo for his new record in Standard Definition, out on Paperback Records. It is a concept record that looks at entertainment from the glory days of La La Lamb to our current obsession with celebrity. He plays demos for us that were the core of his new record. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Get it, get it, get that crazy man. I'm gone. 
Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we are joined by Leslie Marinoff of Matchbook Distilling Company. Leslie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Very excited to be here. Uh, it was such a joy to chat with you on the phone a few weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I definitely can't wait to actually just sit down and interview her for the podcast. Uh, one of the things that I find so interesting is that your dad was in the business and your mom was an artist. Uh, what side of the liquor business or spirits business was your dad in? And how did your mom's uh, art influence the way in which you see the world? Yeah, so my dad is, uh, he has been all over the business. Um, he started out working in the warehouse of his family's um, wholesale business in New York. And then worked his way up and wound up expanding the business to be in a number of states in the United States and now in Canada. So he's on the wholesale side of getting uh, wine and spirits from producers into bars and restaurants and hotels. But then he's so passionate about what he does. He has wound up working directly with wineries in like the Willamette Valley. Um, he has worked directly with spirits companies, investing, helping them grow, importing them into the United States. Uh, and then he was on the board, uh, still is on the board of the Culinary Institute of America. So just like very passionate about food and beverage. Um, and that was so contagious to me from a very young age. I wanted to know everything about everything he was doing all of the time. So I uh, didn't just grow up around the industry and around the business. I was fully immersed in it. Um, I was like doing inventory in warehouses and stomping on grapes at a very young age. Um, and then my mom was a sculptor in New York City and she did a lot of mixed media and she was she's very beautiful and she is very intense. And I think that has also had a lot a big impression on me. Um, she always taught me to be very um, daring and fearless and not to worry about what the feedback was going to be and just to try new things, um, fail quickly. And then she left the art world as soon as she was starting to become kind of um, well-known and she became a farmer. And now she's a biodynamic farmer up in Vermont, which has also had a, a huge impact on me. Yeah. And then we also, we traveled the world um, to- You've been farming since you were a young age, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, I started farming uh, out on the South Fork in Amagansett um, during summers. And I would work on this farm. And then uh, uh, my mom was always gardening. And then my parents would take me to these farming projects all over the world, like throughout, mostly in um, around Africa and Uganda, Rwanda, um, some in South Africa. So yeah, spent a lot of time on farms growing up. What, 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 what did you grow on the North Fork? What were the crops? So um, we were on the South Fork growing um, at tomatoes, um, like a crazy number of tomatoes. There was like a tomato taste off every year where we would taste uh, over a hundred different types of tomatoes. Um, and then lots of herbs, lots of, lots of vegetables. It was an organic uh, CSA farm called Quail Hill where I was working on some, during summer. What were some, 
And what were some of the lessons that you learned from farming at such a young age? You know, not all Americans get to have such a unique experience, but artists, spirits, farming, you know, what were some of the early lessons that you still carry with you and, you know, kind of live with you today? Farming is very hard. Um, And there is a rhythm to things. And there are really two schools of thought when it comes to farming, if you can really um, step back. And one is you either work with the land and you watch what's happening and you learn its rhythms and you learn its signs, or you uh, turn farming into a real chemistry experiment where you build a toolbox of chemicals um, and inputs and you learn how to wield them. So uh, Um, the latter is where conventional farming is, where it's really based on efficiency. And there's a lot of good that is behind that, you know, wanting to grow dense, high, high yielding food has had a lot of good intentions, right? Feed more people. Um, but it made a lot of poor, poor, poor nutrition, for food. Um, Literally, produce has lower levels of nutrition than it used to. Um, And it it made for very vulnerable food, food that our agriculture that couldn't defend itself from pests and predators. Um, The first way, which is what organic and biodynamic and regenerative styles of agriculture fall under, that takes a lot of work, um, but you wind up with really beautiful um, produce in the end. Um, we are trained by biology to want to seek out food that is very nutritious, and we uh, therefore find real pleasure and enjoyment in a carrot that's full of nutrition versus a carrot that's been brought up on essentially steroids. Um, and I learned that from a young age, and that's had a had a real impact on me. So you you grew up. Um, you went to Vermont. Uh, you got into distilling brandies, and then you started Broke in Burlington, which I feel is very reminiscent of Open Bar NYC, which I dabbled in quite a few nights. Um, but for those who are not familiar with either Broke in Burlington or Open Bar NYC, what what was it, and and what be, what came of it? Yeah, it was a website where every day we would call up every bar and restaurant in town and we would get their food and drink specials and we'd post them online. And that's how it started. Um, And our goal was to, one, have that information ourselves because we were broke college students. Uh, And then, two, we thought that maybe the bars and restaurants would, you know, give us uh, some free drinks. Um, And we wound up building it into... Uh, an events marketing agency, which was definitely not the plan. And we started working with global spirits companies who were interested in capturing uh, what they call iHub or intellectual hub uh, markets, so college markets, um, capturing young drinkers who are going to be upwardly mobile. So we started creating these programs and we would direct them to support local events. So uh, local art events, local snowboarding events, because we were in Vermont. Um, and we would be bringing in this support from 
from global liquor companies to really build up um, these events, make them great. So that's um, that was very fun and taught me a lot about the marketing side of big brands and big business. And ultimately is how I got uh, my first real job in the industry, uh, working for William Grant Sons, which is a, a global liquor company. I have probably been to your Sailor Jerry parties. I definitely have friends that have the tattoos. So, uh, I mean, it was a time. It was like a total time. Uh, as Even as someone who has tattoos, I was like, who is going to get tattooed at a liquor party? A lot of people. A lot of people, more than I more than I thought. And when we did the first one, um, and we knew that this is not was not entirely a, um, like legal, you need to tattoo on, on licensed, on tattoo licensed premises. You're not allowed to tattoo in bars. And we were thinking, Paul, uh, who is my, uh, COO at the distillery now, uh, we work together at Sailor and we're like, no, one's really going to know. Very few people are going to do this. It'll just be a spectacle. And when we show up to set up the event, at eight in the morning, six hours before the first event is supposed to open, there is a line down and around the block. And we were like, holy shit, we might, we might get noticed. We might have a problem. <laughs> um, and it was fantastic. And it kicked off a, a, a lot of our activity for the next couple of years. Um, but the following morning after that first event, I woke up to emails and missed phone calls from the legal department at William Grant because they had written about this in a local news, uh, music news blog, and it had gotten picked up in Australia. So the news from our first event went around the world. I mean, so that was kind of show. <laughs> I have to ask, did you get any? I yes, I am covered in tattoos now. <laughs> yeah, my parents are delighted. Yeah, uh, as are mine. Um, so, I, I, one of the things that you mentioned was that you did this for a long time. Um, before this, you were you know distilling brandies with infusions. You were making beer in college yourself. You grew up on the farm, but by twenty seven, you were you were just tired, uh, and that you really wanted to get back to making spirits. Yeah. What was that decision? I mean, like 27 is not that old to step away no. from like a fully funded party lifestyle. I, if you had said at like 42, I was quite exhausted. So like, what did, what were you missing? You know, what what was it not fulfilling and where did you need to get, get to? So I think what I've found in the years since is that actually I am not very social. Um, I really, um, I am most comfortable in the distillery, in the winery, like making beverages. Um, I, that, that's where I am. That's where I flourish. And I spent years throwing parties and it, as fun as it was, I, um, I was just not, I wasn't comfortable. And so I think that's why after only three years, I was like, enough. And I went to um, William Grant, the powers that be in William Grant, and I told them I was really needing to move into production. And I would work in any distillery that they wanted to put me in. I'd work on anything. And they gave me a promotion and they offered me the job I had, but on a global scale. So I would essentially be throwing parties around the world and I didn't want it. And then they said, you really do want it. You do want it. You're just, you're, what if you went to, um, 
tour distilleries for a couple of weeks and then we'll get you back on the, and I was like, I don't want to tour distilleries. I, I want to work in production. Um, and so when that was their response, I could see we weren't going to find common ground and I couldn't spend any time traveling the world and partying anymore. Um, if you know anyone who's anti, not antisocial, but if you know any introverts who work in a very extroverted job, um, you know they probably drink too much. And that's what I was doing. I was drinking so much just to like get into the spirit of partying. Um, and yeah, that just wasn't sustainable. So I learned so much from William Grant. Um, I owe them so much. But it was when when that conversation took place, I was I was ready. And I had met Bridget Fertile and she was making rum in Brooklyn and she was a badass and I persuaded her with all of my introverted charm uh, to hire me. And so I jumped straight into that job. We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from our archives, and then we're going to talk about the origins of Matchbook Distilling Co. with its founder, co-founder, Leslie Marinoff, here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. You got a new leather jacket on And so long I can't see your eyes Dance like strangers in the dark It's been so long I want to see your eyes so we become completely numb We've lost ourselves inside this shell In the night, you and me do what we like Do what we like In the night, you and me go home together Or leave separately So good at the end of tonight. Oh, 
the tagline for Matchbook Distilling Co., or what I think is the tagline, is that you coax spirits into being from the ground up, which is a very simple phrase, but kind of encaptures a lot. Once uh, you left Bridget, once um, the rum was acquired, where did the origins or inklings of Matchbook come from? So I loved making lots of different recipes. When I was in college and I was brewing beer or when I was in the mountains distilling, and I loved how what what I was making was was whatever agriculture was available to me in that moment. And that really shaped the recipes. Um, and that's really what I wanted to tap into. Um, I also was acutely aware of the fact that when you go into a liquor store, it might look like you have a lot of different choices because you see all these different labels, but you don't, right? Like you get to choose between 50 bourbons. Um, and maybe those 50 bourbons are different bourbons, but there's a good chance that a lot of them are the same liquid and they've just been finished in different barrels. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, show people that spirits can be made from anything as long as it contains carbohydrates, which most foods do. Um, and I wanted to show people that distilling can actually be work in total and complete harmony with agriculture. And the way that spirits have been made so far is, for one, there are six maybe 10 global liquor companies that own everything, right? They own 99 point, maybe today, now that we have so many craft distilleries, maybe those big liquor companies own 99.7% of all of the spirits you see on shelves. And then that 0.3% are craft distilleries. Um, and so you just... Those big distilleries, they're very good at what they do. They're very good at consistency. They're very good at efficiency. Um, but at the end of the day, you're only tasting the expression of six people. Uh, and they're, they're overwhelmingly male-dominated. They're overwhelmingly white European. You just have and they're, again, they're great at what they do, but you just have that. And I wanted to see if I could create a means for other people to express through beverage alcohol, like, would they come? So when I was building Matchbook, I was thinking about farms and agriculture, and I was thinking about creating resources for lots of people to be able to come and create their own spirits. And we've followed through on that. So we do a lot of very close collaboration with local farms and farms throughout the state and farms further away. And then we do a lot of like contract partnership work with bars and restaurants and new brands. Um, that, that has been the goal from the start. And that, that's where we are today. Uh, we just, the amount of limited releases and experimental batches that we've released, I didn't was not part of my plan, but it's wound up becoming one of my favorite parts of the business. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious about that. Because you work um, with farmers and you work with what's available, I'm, I'm curious about the output. Um, you also speak a lot about, you know, not sacrificing biodiversity for the, you know, for finances. So I'm really curious, like, is how do you say like, Hey, this, is it like wine? Like, this is just what we produce. Like what is the uh, give and take you have with bars and restaurants? 
that that's exactly it. It's like this is how much we've made, and if you uh, if you want it, you have to just get it, or at least tell us how much you're going to need, and you have to just stick with that number um, because there's only so much of it available. Um, when you visit our website, you see a lot of sold outs, and I think that's because I want people to understand what it is that we're making and what they can expect to see from us in the future and how we're growing. Um, but ultimately, like our batches are very limited because they are determined by what's available. Um, and that goes back to the history of distilling in the U.S., um, probably in the world, but I I'm only comfortable talking about the U.S. <laughs> Farms that would utilize fermentation and distillation as techniques for preserving bounty that they couldn't eat before that agriculture would perish. Um, so you would ferment it into preserves or pickled some things. Uh, you would make beer and cider and you'd make these distillates and they were not focused on standards of identity as we are today. Like this, a bourbon must be 51% corn. It was more like, this is what we have available. Um, I would say the other major tradition for that would be Italy with all of their liqueurs, amaros, aperitifs, um, or aperitivo, and um, and in France with things like grappa or rum made from beets. And, and I kind of think about like your inspiration behind all these things, like the 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 magic of it all. Um, so we're on HRN, which came from the Heritage Food Network, and one of the stories that Patrick told me, who's our founder, was that you know he would sometimes get farmers that would be like, "Hey, I've got ten pounds of pig ears." <laughs> can you sell them? And he'd be like, hold on. He'd call up all the restaurants and he asked his broker. He's like, can you put pig's ear in the menu? He's like, oh, I got five pounds. I got two pounds. I got three pounds. So do farmers call you up and they say, Leslie, I've got, you know, a hundred pounds of kumquats <laughs> or whatever the quantity might be. How, how does that work? And, and what is maybe like a really good product that's come from a scenario just like that? Yeah, I have one that's about to come out that speaks to that perfectly. Um, we had a farm that we work with a lot say, hey, we have all of these musk melons. No one knows what a musk melon is. No one is, what is buying a musk melon? They look like um, they look like something out of the carnival. Um, they look like like a carnival squash, but it's a melon inside. And um, and they're very aromatic, um, but they have a sort of soft cantaloupe texture. People were not digging it. <laughs> and when I tried to, when I tried to eat one, I was like, I get it. Like the flavor is great, but the texture is a little strange. They're heirloom. They're heirloom uh, melons. And so we juiced the melons that they had. They had a strange amount, like 250 pounds. So we juiced that, which isn't enough to put through the still. But we also had a bunch of whey uh, from white mustache yogurt. So it's the byproduct of making their um, their Lebanese yogurt. It's a very sugary, creamy water. Um, and then we have a client that was making bitters, but they only, they needed a ton of citrus peels, but then they had nothing to do with the juice. So we're like, okay, press the juice. So then we're co-fermenting the juice, uh, from the citrus and the juice from the musk melons. And then we threw in the whey and we fermented that. And then we had, um, um, fresh beach roses. Like there are these 
really aromatic flowers that grow along the beach. And every year when they come into bloom, I take that as an excuse to like leave work for several hours and hang out on the beach. And I just harvest these petals. Um, So when it came time to distill this spirit, I threw those petals in. And then we had some rosolio. So it was fresh damask roses that were grown in Chennai um, that had been macerating in uh, some Sauvignon Blanc eau de vie that we had made the year prior. And I, the flavor wasn't what I wanted. So I was like, oh, let's just throw that in. The flavor had gotten too bitter. It was like overly extracted, but bitterness gets left behind in the still. So I was like, oh, that'll be perfect. We'll get the aromatics of the flowers and the aromatics from that eau de vie. Um, and then one of my friends, um, Greg, grows hops. And he was like, these hop leaves are so aromatic. I'm bummed to throw them out. Can you do something with them? So I was like, yes. So two garbage bags full of hop leaves into this still. And then I harvested some fresh juniper branches and let that one into this still. And what came out was this super floral, juicy, like creamy spirit, um, and it was so delightful. Uh, as it was coming off this still, I had this like moment of affirmation. Like, I am in the right place. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where I'm supposed to be. So I'm excited for that to come out. Um, and then the, one of the first things we made at Matchbook was a watermelon eau de vie uh, that has become like a hallmark of Matchbook. Every year now, we're up to 16,000 pounds of watermelons a year that we juice. And the reason we had started it was a local farm. Um, we ran into one of the guys who works at Sepp's Farm, um, and he was having a tough day. We were having a drink. He said last year, everyone had wanted watermelons. They planted all this extra watermelon this year. No one was buying watermelons. And so they had thousands of pounds that were going to just like decay on the vine. And at the bar that night, I was like, just send them all to me. And I bought all of the watermelons. And that was a huge deal for this farm. Like that was thousands of pounds of watermelon and we pressed them all hands on deck at the distillery and our sister project the lynn um came down and we just pressed watermelon for days fermented and distilled it um and now we sell like a watermelon eau de vie can seltzer so the only ingredient are these local watermelons fermented and distilled um and then it's diluted down to four percent and carbonated so very simple uh it's like seltzer, like the hard seltzer the matchbook way you've touched on it a few times one of the core stories or one of the things that makes you so successful is your team um Seems very tight knit, almost a bunch of introverts living together. Some might say that you thought COVID was a blessing, you know, all things aside. Uh, tell me about your team and how they play a role in the creation and, and the formation of your spirits. So uh, I'm team obsessed. I think culture is very important. Um, and I'm so grateful that we, that's one thing we've really gotten right. Uh, so the talent at Matchbook, we really punch above our weight. We have people that we definitely could not, cannot afford and people who, um, could work anywhere they wanted to. And I, I think they are really excited about what it is that we're doing every day and what our priorities are, um, and so it's a huge honor that they come to work, uh, that they come to work with me. Um, nothing, 
that anyone does is done in a vacuum. Like we are a team. And any any story that I tell um, about any creation that we've made, it there are so many people behind the scenes that have made that possible. Um, and they are truly dedicated to process. I think a lot of a lot of producers of beverage alcohol love to talk about they, they love to talk in terms of art, like that grapes are a uh, like a they're a painter and, and those are their like paints. Um, but I think my team and I are really passionate about uh, about developing and honing our skills so that we can translate the natural world at its peaks into the bottle. That's like that coaxing, like coaxing the natural world into the bottle. Um, when you think about process, we really think about air and light um, and even our containers like glass or or wood, those are all ingredients and we need to be very thoughtful about them. How much oxygen, when oxygen exposure happens, like it is a constant labor uh, and a constant thought process. And my team is all similarly obsessed with mastering their own technique and how to control those ingredients. Yeah, you're awesome. <laughs> um, and I do have to ask, you know, how did COVID change the business? And, you know, what changes did you make to the way you run things, the way you operated? And what did you see? And what are you seeing now as we kind of turn the corner proverbially um, outside of it? So when COVID first started to um, be present itself as a reality. Um, there were some very scary numbers that were thrown out, right? I, I can't remember what it was, but people were talking about, people were projecting like a million people were going to die in Manhattan. Um, it was just very dark and very scary and everything closed down. Um, but as you mentioned uh, or touched on, um, we mostly live in the same building um, or we live on the same property. We're a single family household um, and we were considered an essential business at the distillery. So we were able to continue work and there was just a, a nervousness going on in the air with everyone. And we had to think about how we were going to spend our time if our business fell off and how we were going to make sure that everyone knew that they were going to have a job that they were that we weren't going to think about firing anyone that that wasn't anything we were thinking of um and so we decided to focus on a couple projects one uh we started making sanitizer so because we have so many um offcuts from our botanical distillates like we produce so many one-off things so we have a lot of um a lot of excess alcohol we're constantly thinking about what to do with. So we started to convert that into sanitizer and we started delivering it to all of the bars and restaurants we could think of. Um, and then we started to create these limited releases. These we started releasing some of our, our R and D. Um, and so we challenged ourselves with one release a month, which was very exciting for everyone on the team. And then our COO, Paul Monahan, he one day uh, decided to build a huge 
fire pit. Uh, so when the local dive and cocktail bar both announced they were closing, like Paul decided we needed a place to be together. Uh, so he broke ground on a six foot wide, three foot DIY fire pit made from stone and concrete um, without doing any research. He just, <laughs> he, he just like made this up as he went along. And then suddenly we had this huge fire pit and we were all hanging out at it after work every day. We were cooking over it. Um, it. It was a very communal and comforting place to be. Um, and it's, I decided that we needed another like little energy boost. Um, and so I ordered several thousand pounds of pineapples because nothing says like, we're not going out of business than a, uh, spur of the moment, several ton order of pineapples. Um, and we decided to roast the pineapples in the fire pit. And we wound up spending days around this fire pit, building up these huge fires and laying down about a thousand pounds of pineapples at a time and then burying them and then digging them up. And then we'd press them and ferment and distill them. And we created this spirit called Ritual Sister. And I think when Ritual Sister was being made, that was the moment where everyone settled. Everyone like settled into this new reality and everyone really came together and we sort of silently decided like everything was going to be okay. Um, we just needed to stick together and like keep moving things forward. And we did. So we, after that, we released an, another 15 releases. We've now gone to releasing two releases a month. Um, and the energy and camaraderie on the team if has only like been made stronger over the the last year. Wow. Uh, it's incredible. Um, one other point that I think contributes to that uh, is that you are on the floor a majority of your time. Um, I would say probably you've got PTSD from being marketing queen and tattoo champion. What is being on the floor and being with the team? How does that help you guide the business and, and what lessons have you learned from taking that in a leadership role where you might not even be expected or, or allowed to? Sure. Um, I think it's really important for me to have my hands in the process. Um, I think everything that Matchbook does, no matter what activity, whether we're talking about sales and consulting um, or we're talking about whiskey production or whatever, it all stems from our paradigm, the matchbook paradigm. And that worldview is really created on the production floor. Uh, and it's reinforced with every small decision we make fr from the production standpoint, from the agriculture we choose to use, um, and all of the decisions we make as we constantly reaffirm our commitment to expressing terroir and seasonality and climate change and what what have you. Like we are about expression over consistency. And I think that is really important. And I think that would make every other distillery cringe uh, because everyone prides themselves on consistency. Um, and we want consistency of experience. We want our cons everyone who is drinking our spirits to walk away feeling good um, and happy and maybe a little 
perplexed and excited about what they're tasting. Um, and we want to consistently produce excellence. Um, but we don't want every batch to taste the same. We want every batch to express the agriculture. Um, and I think that it's very important for me to be there, to be the custodian and guide of, of that direction. Uh, and I think our culture throughout the business takes a lot of inspiration from that commitment on the floor. Uh, I don't see myself going anywhere else in the business. Like I really am very committed to, to production. Um, it's where I think it's where, yeah, our culture starts. Uh, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we touch on uh, look left your newest endeavor. Can you please yeah. explain it? To you? I mean, in a, and then for people who don't know, you've only been around for like three years. So everything that you're telling me, people are like, Oh, well, like a 10 year career, of course they're going to do it. It's like, this isn't so impressive and, and so amazing. Uh, but you're not done yet. So what is this new initiative? So, um, at matchbook, we, do make so many different distillates. We uh, research and development is a core for us, um, and then partnering with these local farms. So we're just constantly producing, and we have built this library of over well over a hundred distillates um, that are extractions of single ingredients: um, barks, roots, florals. Um, herbs, what what have you. And so we want to share these extractions with people. Um, we've got Buddha's hand, we've got Palo Santo, we've got six different junipers. And people don't get to experience those. Um, they've really just been for us. And I've noticed when anyone on our team will like taste a coffee or will taste some whiskey or wine. And our tasting notes are not like standard book variety, how to taste wine. People are like, I taste kumquat. I taste, I taste Palo Santo. Um, and I think your, your palate is only as good as your experience. It's your context. And the world, the natural world has such a beautiful bouquet to it. Uh, Look Left is the opportunity to taste the world with us. So every month we will send out two different bottlings of our from our library and it's there for you to experience the world through our eyes, through our labs, uh, to expand your palate and then to add like really interesting and complex and exciting flavors to your drinks with no effort. So it's educational, but it's a real pleasure. <laughs> and that's Amazing. what left. Yeah, it's just about to come out. I'm so excited about it. Um, we're only starting with 30 subscriptions while we teach ourselves how to um, how to build it out. But then we, we will expand as soon as we're able to. Amazing. Well, Leslie, it's been a pleasure. Uh, where can people find you, um, reach out to you, get whatever is not sold out, yeah. <laughs> contact you for consulting, make stuff from scratch? Where, how do they find you? So uh, I do our Instagram, so you can always, uh, I don't I don't really, but I'm, I'm good at answering messages on Instagram. So you can always direct message at Matchbook Distilling um, or reach out through info at matchbook.com. 
matchbookny.com. You can shop our spirits on our website, The Drop Shop, mdcdropshop.com, or from an, we have a number of retail partners. Astor Wine and Spirits and Vine Wine are awesome. They ship to a lot of places, Stranger Wines, um, Henry's, all great shops. Um, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are going to play another song from our archives, and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com.
Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I would love, love to welcome to the show, Art Deco. Welcome. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me, Greg. Uh, congratulations on the new record in standard definition. Uh, it is quite a phenomenal listen. Um, how are things going? Uh, well, thanks. Um, it's going pretty good, as good as it can, I guess, with uh, with all things considered. With you're in the states and I'm in Canada, so up here in Canada, we're uh, we're still we're still we're still treading in the waves, if you will. So, uh, and I haven't even been vaccinated yet because there's a uh, there's a little bit of a backlog, and so yeah, hopefully the end is nigh and we can you know get on the road and start celebrating music again. And I'm sure. Uh, your listeners and yourself are probably itching to go to some concerts. So. I mean, I want strangers to sweat on me. Yeah. <laughs> like like in, the, in the won- best and worst ways. <laughs> yeah, I've never looked forward more to spending $10 on a sh- crappy draft beer and, you know, having someone basically spit in my mouth for two hours. Yeah, it's it's going to be phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I love the record. Um I, I heard it before it was uh, sent sent to me, and uh, I just I think it's I think it's phenomenal, and I want to set it up a bit because it is a concept album. Um, it is about kind of like the the way that entertainment used to be, and the way that we deal with celebrities now. How did this idea come to you, and, and how did it evolve um, from your last record and, and projects? So, with my last record, uh, Trespasser, I was living. You know, there's that old trope in like man moves to woods and makes album. Like I literally, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into the backstory because it's I, I'm so tired of talking about five, six, seven years ago. But I lived, I lived in the Gulf Islands of British Columbia, which is kind of a little mystical world of you know orcas and mist and and you know it's just green and gray and drab. And I was you know taking care of an ailing family member, and I wrote an album there, and it was it was a very introspective introspective introspection uh record and it was looking inside and it was very you know it's it kind of reflected my mood at the time which was this melancholy sort of existence and i didn't want to go down that path again so i i was on the road touring uh that record and there's just this weird repetitive nature of going from show to hotel room and, you know, you got the TV on and I would be demoing songs. And I thought, I'm going to write about entertainment from the perspective of the entertainer looking out at the audience. It could be a musician. It could be a podcast host. It could be a game show. <laughs> it could be anybody. Or the audience absorbing entertainment because, you know, I play both sides of the fence, right? I love going to concerts. I love being on stage at a concert. So, and then the third idea I, I had, like, all these odds and ends that really fit into neither category that could just be filed under like, what if this was like, this song was the script of a movie. And so all that just sort of kind of started to snowball. And then, you know, we, we got into uh, the recording process and it was just like, well, my obsession and my relationship with entertainment is, is by virtue of like, you know, the recording process and how things used to be captured on two inch tape. So I had to record on two inch tape and I had to have the photos done you know on film and 35 millimeter and yeah just it was like this endless wormhole of obsessing over you know old methods of recording and capturing entertainment 
And and I love the way that the record is broken down. That like each track is its own mini episode, a, a look into different viewpoints and the different entertainers. How did you break down the ideas and, and make sure that each song told its own little story that was part of the whole narrative? I mean, that's a fair question, and you don't. Re- I, um, I because I demo and I write everything just sort of alone here, wherever my studio is. And then I have a, a group of musicians that back me up that I can, this kind of this revolving, this pool, everybody's just really talented and plays in their own bands or plays in many bands. And so I kind of like bring the demos to, uh, and cherry pick like who I think will fit on each song. So each song kind of had its like rock identity, if you will. Mm. And, you know, once I, you know, I got some feedback and, you know, Pascal, my bass player, who's kind of rock solid and like sort of my, you know, my, my left-hand man, if you will, he, he's like, you know, we need a banger. We need like a this, or what if we need it? You know, he would kind of play a good foil and ask me questions because he's kind of like a no BS guy. So then I go back to the demoing process. Like, yeah, I think in listening to the whole album, we need a little shade of this, or I need to kind of touch in on this. So it was really sticking and adhering to a set of rules, which was kind of exciting to do. It was like, here's the mission statement. Here's the syllabus and let's fit everything into here that I, and, and then we won't stop until it's done. Amazing. Well, uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to hear some demos. Uh, so which demo are you playing for us first? Um, <laughs> I forgot which ones I sent you. Uh, did I send you I'm the Dance Floor? You sent us I'm the Dance Floor. Okay, Bird let's do it. Okay, we're going to throw to I'm the Dance Floor. <laughs> uh, what do you, you want to know? Um, uh, well, what, what about, the, well, first off the, ep- the episode of the idea behind this song, um, it's kind of like your most, like, uh, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's your most declarative song on the record, I think. Right. And it's very much like, my God, I would all, I think we all want to be dance floors right now on a dance floor, under a dance floor, looking at a dance floor. Uh, what is the idea behind this? And what are you trying to tell the audience? Right. So back to kind of circle the wagons back to like where I came from. Cause it helps understand. Like if you listen to trespass on my last album, there was a lot of whisper. There's a lot of falsetto. I was singing in my inside voice. Cause you know, that's how I felt. And with this one, after getting out on the road and like, just having to like shout on top of a band every night, I was like belting out these songs that were, were almost like, whispered you know intimately into the microphone and i thought i can't do another album like that so the first song i wrote was i'm the dance floor in this new batch where i was just like i'm just gonna sing with in the most it's ridiculous i mean first of all i am not the dance floor if anybody's ever seen me you know white man underbite shimmy on the dance floor you want to stay as far away from my dance moves as possible but there is a person out there who would go to the bar every weekend almost like this john travolta type character in my hometown and just rip up the dance floor and everybody just wants to tag this guy in and i was thinking about him i was thinking about cbgb punks taking over studio 54 and i was just having fun with it it's definitely my most ridiculous glammy punky spazzy kind of song in the album okay well here we are with art deco i am the dance floor from in standard definition
I just have to say this record sounds so good. <laughs> you know, I, I listen to a lot of records, you know, through my iPhone or th- stuff that gets streaming. Uh, this just sounds rich and round and full and complete. Uh, and I know it is in no, uh, no lack of the way in which you recorded. Talk to me about the process, your time at the hive, your work with Colin Stewart and, uh, what went into recording this and making it sound just so damn good? Thanks. Um, well, we recorded it like late 2019. So all of these songs have been in the can for a year and a half. Like I, we're in the middle of 2021. And to sit on these songs for so long, it was really hard not to go back and tinker. You know, the best movies, the best scripts, the best art is never finished. It's abandoned, right? And I, I know that's such a cliche thing to say, but with this, like, you know, the song Head Rush, I wrote that in the summer of last of this last year. It was a, like kind of like a late addition to the album. It wasn't even going to be on the album. It was going to be on the next album. And it's been so far like the radio song and like the kind of the one people gravitate to. So recording the album... You know, I had a very, I had a lot of notes. I went in with Colin and I was like, I'm, do you want to co-produce this with me? And I want to record to tape and I want to bring in like 20 different musicians. They're all going to be kind of like siloed into their little section and they're only going to really know what their parts are on the songs they're playing. And so it was just like, okay, we're doing horns today. We're doing violins today. And we just kind of went through and just uh, uh, timbres uh, of instruments that shouldn't really go together like cold synthesizers don't really fit with saxophones and acoustic guitars and, but I wanted to kind of that was the challenge was shoehorning all of these disparate kind of like sounding instruments and in an arrangement and making sure that they all fit sonically in this collage this like kind of pastiche of 73 to 83 sonic you know, aesthetics and Colin, he had a really challenging job to sort of let it make everything kind of fit together. And I'm, I'm just kind of pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. So that's kind of how that relationship went. It was like five or six weeks of just constantly like, can we boost the guitar, you know, half a DP DB at eight K, like just getting <laughs> super technical and like, you know, I'd, I'd come back the next day and we're like, no, we got to, we got to, re- we got to go back to the beginning. And it was just, I might've given him like almost, um, you know, PTSD by the end of it, but he's such a chill guy and he's worked with like Black Mountain and New Pornographers and Destroyer. And like, he's, he's like got a big analog heart. So I was really lucky to be able to work with him. Uh, so why don't we hear the the demo of Head Rush next? Uh, anything our listeners should know before we, we play it? This one is the file. This one under. Um, this is like the feel good summer hit of the. It, this is like your your sixteen years old. You know, you you got your summer crush. It's the last day of school, and you're gonna ride your bikes with your friends to the the creek by the movie theater, and you know, smoke a joint, and then go go watch like you know some summer movie that's like playing in theaters. I don't know. I don't want to date myself here but let's just say it could be anything from american graffiti to dazed and confused or any one of those kind of movies and um yeah i wanted to kind of embody that nostalgia uh and i'll quickly say this i grew up working in kitchens and i was i was a line cook for like all of my teen years and you know that if it wasn't for those that those that job working in a kitchen um i wouldn't have gotten into rock and roll because you know 
when the who work you know is the boss of the kitchen controls the kitchen stereo and it was all classic rock and so this song was kind of an homage to that version of me that air period of my life that you know uh was so important and so i don't want to sound drippy and you know mushy with nostalgia but it really kind of i wanted to bottle all of that history into a song amazing well here we are with the demo for head rush touched on them but the musicians on this record are phenomenal uh like when the horns come in on desires it's just like whoa these are some players uh who made up the 20 musicians that you filtered in throughout the studio and how did you collect them the yeah well thanks I, i agree um the backing band i have is a mix of just players like I've played with, there's, I think, three drummers on this album. 
you know, percussionist, one bass player. There's a couple guitar players. I play a lot of the instruments myself too, but the horns players were like total jazz cat R and B dudes that don't even play rock and roll. They didn't even know who I was or who Colin was, you know, and it was great. And, you know, the string players were like, you know, music teachers and like, um, total conservatory Victoria symphony orchestra players. And it was just so cool to see, like when I sent out the demo, the demo you just heard of head rush, like I'm playing those horn lines on a MIDI keyboard. Those are like processed software synthesized, um, synthesized horns. And so I did that throughout the album and then I sent the demos to these players and I'm like, this is really Mickey Mouse stuff. I know you'll nail it. I'm not asking for much. Would you be interested in, you know, hopping in the studio for a couple sessions? And they were totally down. One guy brought charts, like made sheet music. <laughs> I was just kind of blown away. I'm like, other players, I'd bring in like a melodica, which is kind of like, um, you know, like an accord. It's like a cross between like an accordion and a harmonica, and it's got a little keyboard. And I'm just like blowing into this instrument and fumbling around to try and find the melody for the violin and cellists to play. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we got it, you know, easy, you know. And it was kind of fun to be with, like, really, really world-class musicians in that capacity because they're just so good and they just, like, rarely make a mistake. Whereas I'm, like, fumbling around, like, what's the note? What key is this in, you know? So, yeah, it was, it was kind of – it was a really cool experience. I kind of don't ever want to not make an album with, like, 20 musicians, you know. Yeah, it's like how do you put that genie back in the bottle? Yeah, like it, and I'm not comparing myself to like totally preface this statement by saying I, you know, Brian Wilson is obviously a hero to a lot of people, but watching him in the documentary of Pet Sounds mm. work a room of musicians like a conductor, they, that to me was mind blowing because they all 20 of those, you know, wrecking crew players are playing at the same time. Uh, and, you know, one person makes a bum note and like it's like, you know, you know, Phil Spector is going to make them go back to the beginning or, you know, like whoever's kind of conducting at the time is going to make them do another take. And I feel like I would just, I don't, I'd be too overwhelmed, but I was inspired by that. And I'm like, I'm going to bring in players like that, but just do them section by section so that we're not, you know, all playing live at once. Just, you know, I'd probably still be making the record. So I want to make sure we have time for this last demo, Bird of Prey. Um, Tell us about it. Um, what What is it uh, about this? Uh, you say it's the most complex song on the entire record. Yeah. Well, it's the most party, like parts-wise, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's uh, learning on the acoustic guitar, and it's uh, it definitely threw my, my rhythm section for, for a loop. I don't know. It's a song about, I was, I had just met, um, this person who would be, I mean, I met the woman I would marry and, uh, proposed to, and I, we just started dating at the time and, uh, and a few, like a month into seeing this person and it was a long distance relationship. I'm visiting her in Vancouver and she, it's her birthday and she goes to England for two weeks with her mom and I'm house sitting at her house. And it just felt like a total sitcom plot, you know, like, like, uh, what, what if this doesn't even work out? Like, what kind of, tr how trusting is this person to just leave this, like, almost stranger in her house for two weeks? And, you know, she had an acoustic guitar in the corner. I wrote that song. And her uh, bird of praise is kind of an inside thing with her because her last name is, is a bird species. So, 
Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a love song, um, very cryptic, and you know you can interpret it however you, way you want. But uh, yeah, is what it is. Well, Art, I want to thank you for for joining us. Before we play this last song, where can people find you? Hear your record? Uh, you know, keep a tabs on updates when the the world unfreezes a little bit more. Well, um, they can find it on all the streaming services in standard definition. Art Deco, little D apostrophe, big E C C O. Um, and now that everybody's heard the demos, I hope they actually do get to hear the real versions because <laughs> I just, I just revealed the sausages. They're open. You can see how they're made and, you know, please don't judge me. Perfect. Uh, well, we want to thank Leslie from Matchbook Distilling Company for joining us early. Uh, thank you to Jeet for putting this together. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Here we go with Art Deco. Birds of Prey, we'll see you next week.
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.